Hello and welcome to another episode of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks, and we're continuing this kind of mini series that we created from just asking high school kids what are their questions that they have in general, uh, but particularly since they came from a seminarian, uh, molded around the faith element of their lives. And some of the questions that we had earlier you know, were directly about some of the rules that the church makes. Some were faith-driven questions. And we concluded the last episode um, with some of the, the, the gender identity questions that we had. Um, and now we have a the next upcoming question. Um, I've got to kind of combine two of them here to make it, make it a flowing conversation. But the first one is, why does the church not allow homosexuals to get married? And does the church hate gay people? So to kind of combine those two questions into one to let you give the official answer that makes sense. Um, yeah, no, the, the church doesn't hate gay people for, for one thing. Uh, again, you know, these, we, we sort of take things, uh, all these things are so sensitive, you know, it's uh, so, uh, and I never know who's listening. And uh, so I, I want to be sensitive. Uh, you know, the definition of gay person is somebody asked, you know, we talked about in a previous cast, how do you know that Jesus is real? Um, like, how do you know that gay is real? I mean, what, how do you define that? And like, how do we get that? So anyway, what, what, what the definition even is of a gay person, uh, you know, maybe we can talk about a white person or a black person, but even, even there, you know, there's a little bit of fuzz in there, you know, it's like how, how we have to define terms is one of the problems. Um, but for somebody who experiences a predominantly same sex attraction, let me say that, <laughs> Uh, rather than defining a person by their sexuality, for a person who experiences a predominantly same-sex attraction, because you know people experience all kinds of attractions at different times and to different people and in different situations, you know, whatever. There are a lot of attractions, and even somebody who's married and experiences a predominantly heterosexual attraction may also sometimes experience a same-sex attraction. Anyway, there's there's a little bit of fluidity there. So kind of nailing down hard categories is already a little bit uh, troubling. But it, the church doesn't define a person by their sexuality, first of all. So the church doesn't hate any people of any kind. Whether that person experiences a predominantly same-sex attraction, or whether that person is a male or a female, or whether that person has two X's and one Y chromosome, or whether that person is uh, paralyzed from the neck down, or whether that person is, you know, the church doesn't hate anybody. So there's, it's not a matter of hating anybody at any time. We, we believe that every human being is made in the image and likeness of God, and we are commanded, commanded. It's an absolute and unconditional, incontrovertible command that we love everybody as Christ loves us. That's the new commandment that Jesus gives us. So there's no question about that. None whatsoever at all. No question. The church commands everybody. Jesus commands everybody to love everybody. There's no getting out of that. So um, so that's the first thing. There's no question about hating any any person. And, and to the contrary, there's a profound amount of compassion. Now, the 
you know, we would say there's a particular way of helping people. What's going to be the most helpful thing for somebody? That's the important question to ask. What's going to help someone the most? Is it going to help the person to just do whatever they feel like doing? Uh, somebody who has a predominantly same-sex attraction, how should they deal with that? Just like, forgive me for making the comparison, but, um, you know, somebody who experiences uh, a a trouble with alcoholism or a tendency to codependency or uh, a, a bipolar personality disorder or, a, um, you know, or a super genius, right? You know, we, we all have different things going on in us. How do we help people given the way that they're made up and the particular gifts, uh, strengths and weaknesses, gifts and talents, uh, struggles, deficiencies, failures, successes, you know, given the person, the, the individual person, how do we help the person the most to become the most they can be, to thrive in the human goods, to have an inner harmony, to have uh, integrity and authenticity, to have healthy relationships and a healthy relationship with God, to have good health and to pursue a vocation that's a, a appropriate to their lives, that's a, a human good. So how do we help people develop human goods the best way? That's the, that's the question. So somebody who experiences a predominantly same-sex attraction, what's the best thing for that person? Well, we don't believe, I don't believe, and natural law doesn't believe, and you know the church's teaching goes along with that, that acting that out, that caring, having homosexual activity is going to be helpful for that person in the long run, is going to lead to the development of human goods and interior peace and harmony and good relationships with, with other people. Uh, that, that, that use of sexuality is contrary to the meaning of sexuality, that it's not using our sexuality in a way that, uh, that, that fits the meaning. It's not what our sexuality is for. Uh, it, our sexuality is, uh, is, is first of all, a, a matter of complementarity and a union of reproductive systems. So the real union, the existential union of two people sexually is actually uniting their reproductive systems. A male has only a half a reproductive system and a female only has half a reproductive system. And so the union that's experienced is uniting two halves of a bodily system into one, which therefore has to actually be unified, which is why uh, contraceptive techniques are problematic. We're not unifying the reproductive systems when we're interfering with various forms of contraception, when we're sterilizing one reproductive system or the other, we're not actually uniting those reproductive systems. So, so the union is coming about through that. And that's what leads to all of the other positive benefits of that union, which are psychological and which are uh, ultimately procreative, open to children, and which bond together uh, a man and a woman who are able to do that, and uh, which it makes it possible to consummate marriage and basically renew our marriage vows through that uh, sexual union, through that marital union. So, you know, we have to look at the meaning of things and act in accord with the meaning of things in order to thrive. Uh, you know, there's a particular purpose for a hammer and there's a per particular purpose for a, a stick of salami, you know, and 
if you try to eat a hammer, you try to pound in a nail with a stick of salami, like it's not working. <laughs> There's, it's uh, Anyway, I suppose you get a little roughage from that hammer, but uh, it's not going to work out for you in the end. So we have to use things in accord with their meaning, their purpose. Um, so what does, what's the meaning of marriage? And that's an important question. We've kind of diluted marriage to be two people living together for the mutual support of those people. And then they can sort of have sexual activity together in a way that feels good for both of them or something like that. I, it seems a little bit confusing what we've done with marriage, but ma marriage has a, uh, a different purpose than that. Uh, now, in terms of the living together and supporting each other, uh, we have other ways to do that. You know, I, I live with a hundred men in a monastery and we support each other. We, we, you know, we pay our bills together and we have a common health insurance plan and the abbot has power of attorney over me. And when I'm dying in the hospital, he'll be the one that chooses whether to pull the plug or not. Uh, I'll be buried here in my community, my family, my monastic family takes care of me. Uh, they provide food for me and, and healthcare. We work together on a common project. We do a lot of things together, but we don't call it marriage. It's not marriage. It's a, it's a monastic community. So that's one part of marriage that, you know, we, any two people could have. Two friends can live together and they can even make some legal contracts to be united with each other legally to support each other in a committed way. And there's something commendable about that. It's, you know, not, it's a, it's a form of community somewhat like what I'm living in a monastery. In terms of the sexual activity, I go back to the first point I made that sexual activity between two people of the same sex is not actually unitive. It might feel good. There's a certain vulnerability and a trust of the other and, and being kind of uh, tender, delicate with one's, somebody else's sexual organs and, you know, I mean, not to get too graphic about all this, but anyway, there's a certain kind of uh, unity that's happening there, but it's because it's misusing our sexuality, there's something that's also fundamentally broken about that. And, and it doesn't actually lead to the bonding that one would want. And so at least the statistics I had seen, I haven't followed up on this in more recent years, but uh, the statistics on the number of same-sex relationships that stay together is very low, that there's a lot of promiscuity. There isn't the kind of committed exclusivity that we find in marriage, uh, traditionally understood between a man and a woman and ordered toward the procreation of children. There isn't the same kind of commitment and bonding and, and exclusivity and lifelong relationship. And from what I understand, now again, I'm you know, I wasn't, I, I don't know how all my statistics lined up, so um, please give me the benefit of the doubt. But uh, from what I understand, when those relationships do stay together, the sexual dimension of them becomes limited or non-existent. As long as there's a lot of sexual activity, as long as that's the kind of point of unity, it's really a mutual using of the other for some sexual gratification, and then any person will do. There isn't the kind of bonding that's there and uh, an experience of total self-giving and, um, you know, for, that, that's normally there in a, in a marriage to form a lifelong relationship. And so um, anyway, there's, there's some fuzz there that people don't like to look at very much. Uh, 
that I think is really important. So why does the Catholic Church not acknowledge that two men or two women can get married? Because it doesn't, marriage essentially has to do with children. Uh, it has to be open to life and it has to do with the union of two reproductive systems, which are a male and a female reproductive system. That's the only way you can actually have a whole reproductive system. Uh, and, and so two men or two women just can't do that. And so they don't fit the, the definition of marriage uh, that, the, that the church understands. So, you know, to call something marriage that is not marriage is, doesn't make sense. Um, so sometimes the people have, uh, the bishops have talked about, you know, do we change the word that refers to what we're talking about, you know, and talking about the sacrament of matrimony or something like that, so that we distinguish, we make a distinction between the sacrament, which requires a man and a woman because it's oriented toward the procreation of children, as opposed to this thing that now society is calling marriage, which is kind of like the union of any two people. And it's not clear why it's only two people. I mean, why not have marriage between three people or four people? And why not have marriage with other kind of interesting combinations? What, how exactly is marriage being defined now is, is part of the problem. But the church's understanding, again, is a man and a woman who can unite their reproductive system in a sexual act that consummates a marriage that's open to and you know, is, is possible to have the procreation of children as, as part of that. I can't hear you. So that's a good answer. I hope that that makes sense to uh, to everyone out there. Sorry for having it on mute there. The follow-up question that we have here uh, to that, I guess it's kind of overarching around everything, is with the core essence of being God is love, as you began your answer there with the church doesn't hate anyone, God doesn't hate anyone, Um since God comes from a space of, of love, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, because he respects our freedom. So we're the ones that brought evil into the world. The devil didn't have the power to do evil if we hadn't cooperated with him. So it's a, it's a respect for our free will that evil came into the world. God gave us free will. And so he gave us permission to cooperate with evil. And there are consequences for that. When we cooperate with evil, bad things happen. And so uh, now bad things happen to bad people and bad things happen to people that bad people attack. And again, that's an, that's an acceptance of our freedom. Now, we might look at the other end and say, well, is it unlimited? Is the evil that can happen unlimited uh, so that any bad thing can happen to anybody and there's, God puts no limits on it? Well, no. We can also say that God put a limit on it. He limits evil to what he can bring good out of and, in fact, a greater good. And so the limit placed around evil is what we would call mercy, divine mercy, what God can transform into good. And so that's why he allowed Adam to sin. But already at the very beginning, he uh, created a plan out of that sin, which would lead to a greater good for Adam, which is not just going back to paradise, but actually going beyond paradise to heaven, 
which is a place of union with God that uh, we have opened up for us now, this place in God himself. So there is a limit on the evil that he does. And furthermore, he himself enters into that evil. So he's not just sort of inflicting it on his helpless creatures. In fact, he's not inflicting. God never does evil. Um, but he allows it insofar as he allows free will. He also limits it to what uh, he can bring greater good out of. And he also shares it with us by entering into it. And that's what we really have in the crucifixion of Jesus. He experiences the worst evil, the worst evil that could ever be committed. And yet, brought the greatest good from it that it could ever be uh, created, which is the resurrection of the body, our, our resurrection uh, from the dead. So uh, that's the kind of basic approach to that. Yeah. Well, that makes sense there. You know, that also kind of has the, the underlying theme that we sometimes have of trying to figure out what, what God's really doing. And I think that that's, as we've we've gone through these episodes and questions, something that's that's a a fundamental flaw. It, it's part of humility is to recognize that we have limitations upon ourselves, and that we ourselves are not the ones whose opinion truly matters. And especially in this modern culture where everyone can say anything to it effectively, a infinite universe on the internet. Um, and it measures how often people like you or not on most of these platforms. We have this overinflated sense that, that what we think matters. But at the end of the day, um, the lack of humility there is a big problem. And the other reason I, I thank you for, for going through these, these questions with us, Father, is that, as I mentioned in a prior episode, the church has 2,000 years, beyond 2,000 years worth of knowledge in this, of sitting down and thinking. And one of the joys of actual truth is it doesn't change. It's truth. You know, at the end of the day, something's right or it's wrong. Now we might need to understand it in different ways with different capacities as some of the questions we had here today didn't exist, you know, 20 years ago, hundred years ago. Uh, but some of them have, you know, is Jesus real? It, it, how does faith work? So, Items like that, I certainly thank you for, for being with us here today and, and grounding us in this. Unfortunately, we didn't have as much time as we normally do for this episode, so we're going to have to uh, uh, end it here. And we thank everyone for listening, and we'll be here again with you next week.